Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, our gift to you for free every single week. This podcast reminds you that it's within your ambition, your purpose, your story. It's all within. We just help you unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes, an expert in high-performing cultures, to speak to the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet so they can be your teacher. Remember, please, this podcast is not about high achievement or high success. It's about high happiness, high self-worth and taking you closer to a life of fulfilment, empathy and understanding. And on that note, before we go any further, everyone on the High Performance Podcast would like to send their love and congratulations to Dame Kelly Holmes, who came out as gay in the last few days. And Dame Kelly actually joined us on High Performance. She was one of the very first people to say yes to the emails that we were sending out, asking people if they would come and you know, be a guest on this strange new podcast journey that we found ourselves on. And she was honest. She was disarming. She spoke about things that I'd never heard her speak about before. Um, and it's been an incredible journey, her life. So if you want to hear what Dame Kelly Holmes said to us on the High Performance Podcast, episode 10 is where you need to head to. But on behalf of all of us, and I know it was a, you know, a big moment for Dame Kelly Holmes, um, and following in the footsteps of Jake Daniels and, and other high-profile sports people as well. It's fantastic that this conversation um, about people's sexuality is being discussed um, and people feel now in 2022 that the world is a world where they can openly say, I'm gay, and they'll be accepted. So, Dame Kelly, congratulations from all of us. Now on to today's episode. This is what's in store for you. This time, with one of the many chats that we had just before he passed away, um, probably the last coherent conversation I had with him, um, I was about to. I said, "Dad, I, you know, better go now. It's getting late." And he said, "No, no, alright, Sonny." And, and as I went, he went, "I love you." And it was like, "Whoa!" And I, I, I went, "Love you too, Dad." And I, I got out and I got in the lift and I was gone. Believe you me, by the way, I wasn't the only one that was in awe of Diego Maradona. When he walked in, everyone's like, tongues were hanging out. I mean, he had that much of a presence. He was that much better than everyone else. I just can't really comprehend how you cannot have a degree of empathy towards people having to flee their own country, which is an unimaginable thing to have to do. I mean, you imagine if suddenly London was completely bombed like we're seeing in Ukraine now and we all had to go. I think you've got to think like that a little bit. So I've always been, you know, on that side of things. And anyone who wants to have a pop at me about that, I don't think they're worth the time of day. Do you remember when I joined BT and I wrote that blog yeah. about we're going to have new new pundits fresh from the game? And you yeah. took offence to that and you messaged me and said yeah. you've offended people with a lifetime in the game. Well, yeah. I wish I hadn't really got involved with the Brexit thing. Really? To be honest. I don't mind admitting, you know, not, not the sense of putting out that I was going to vote for Remain because I I don't mind putting out what I do but the the thing afterwards and then getting a bit carried away with the fact that we lost and I, I, I think if I had my time again I wouldn't have bothered with that Now this is an interesting one for me because obviously I've worked very closely alongside Gary Lineker for well over 10 years both at the BBC and at BT Sport and to be honest I would say that I didn't feel I knew Gary very well actually you know we've done a lot of work together and I guess there is a certain professional 
is it a rivalry? Maybe there is a professional rivalry there um, because we both do similar jobs. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I actually think it's really healthy. But I don't think we know each other particularly well, actually. And I was really glad to have this conversation because there's a few little moments that we've had over the years. I remember writing a blog um, when I joined BT Sport. Gary took exception to it and I was surprised by that. Um, And obviously he didn't like what I'd done. There's been a couple of occasions where he's also done things and I've thought, that's slightly strange. I wonder why he's done that. And it was really good for us actually to have this conversation. You know, as many of you know, one of the biggest issues I have at the moment and why I'm not really on Twitter too much is because everyone feels they have to have an opinion about everything. And it's like the world will still revolve without you sharing your opinion. And we speak to Gary about that and his answers are fascinating. And as you've just heard in that small teaser we've just played, you know, he talks really openly about his relationship with social media, why it's powerful for him, why he does it. And what you have to remember, right, this is a guy who's got to the absolute top of his game in football and then transferred across to broadcasting and got to the top of his game in broadcasting. And that is such a hard thing to do. It isn't celebrated enough. It isn't spoken about enough. And you know, just a few days before this podcast was released, you know, Gary shared some stuff on social media about global warming and everyone just came for him. And it's like, guys, let's have less opinion and let's have more empathy. And I'm so pleased we had this conversation. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy it. Gary, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us. Don't forget, you can watch as well as listen to this. All you need to do is head to YouTube, type in high performance and you can watch this episode. So I really hope that you uh, you do watch this on YouTube as well as listen to it right here, wherever you get your podcasts. And before we get going with today's episode, I just want to say welcome back to Lotus Cars. You know, when we first started the High Performance Podcast, I was just a guy making some television programs, wanting to share these kinds of conversations. I genuinely had no idea whether people would like them, whether people would listen, whether it would have an impact. Um, but Lotus were the very first people when I sent around a load of emails saying, does anybody want to help me with this new idea I've got for a podcast about mindset? Lotus, well, the business said, you know what? We trust you on this, Jake. Give it a go. And um, I'm so pleased that they're back involved with us on High Performance as well. If you're listening to this on Monday and you're in the UK, you would have seen the fantastic review that the Lotus Mirror got last night. Brilliant, brilliant review on Top Gear. Chris Harris drove the car. It's such an exciting time for Lotus Cars. If you want to know what they're up to and if you want to know why their future is electric, then just go to lotuscars.com. But I think the fact they were the very first people to stand alongside the High Performance Podcast and help us make our dream a reality is a good insight into the kind of high-performance people that are running Lotus Cars. Love you, Lotus. Welcome back to the podcast. Let's do it then. Gary Lineker on High Performance comes next. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, Gary, thank you so much for coming and chatting with us today. Pleasure. Let's start then as we always do. What is, in your opinion, high performance? Um... Achieving, I suppose. Um, and I think high performance, uh, personally, is if, if you can perhaps overachieve and do, do better than perhaps people expect, although I always think your own expectations are far more important than other people's expectations of you. Being successful and ultimately being happy um, with your um, levels of success. I think a sustained high performance is also um, consistency related. So I think that's important to do it over a long period of time. Of all of those things, are you most proud of the fact that you have had consistency, whether it was in your football career or in your broadcasting career? Yes, possibly. I, th- I, I think that's probably fair. I think what happens is you obviously you learn what, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to do pretty well in two um, different um, spheres. Um, although they're both obviously related because they're both, you know, the one one consistent in my entire lifetime is is, is football. So they're both related around football. But um, I think, you know, people often say, well, you know, what, was, what, what were you better at and stuff like that? But I think I always say I was born, I think I was born to be in the box um, um, and I kind of learned how to be on the box. <laughs> and I'll end up in a box not long after I've been around that long. But I'm kind of proud of, of the, the longevity I've had in, in, in football and, and proud that I've I made something happen in terms of television that I probably wasn't a natural at it, certainly not at the start. So I had to, you know, football kind of came easy. I knew what I was doing. It was just, you know, obviously you still have to work hard and, and give it everything. But it was, it, you know, had some kind of gift. Whereas TV-wise, I, I understand the sport and I understand football, but I didn't understand television. So I think that the longevity I've had in TV makes me perhaps prouder in a way because it was, it was harder. Mm. So can you tell us about your early life then, Gary, growing up in Leicester? Mm. We just spoke off camera about... <laughs> so we spoke there about, about your dad being a market trader yeah. and that's not an easy job. You know, it's, mm. it's long hours, early starts, etc. And you've just referenced the importance of hard work. What other kind of lessons were you picking up at that young age that have still continued to serve you well? It's it's, it's difficult to remember, you know, that much of my my childhood. Um, like most of it be is, is, was playing football, but I think in terms of work ethic, that came from my dad. I mean, he, he lived life as well. Um, and he would, you know, he'd get up at three, four in the morning. He goes to the wholesale market in Leicester to buy all his produce. He'd then go to the market stall. I mean, Leicester's a you know famous outdoor market. I think at one time it may still be the biggest outdoor market um, in Europe. And he used to, you know, then he'd go to the stall, he'd set all his stuff up, put all the, you know, the oranges, the apples, the strawberries, the bananas, whatever it is. And, you know, 
And then he'd, he'd be serving customers all day. He'd get home, I don't know, six, six thirty in the evening. He'd do his, he'd do his paperwork before and he'd have some dinner and then he'd fall asleep on the couch. He'd have a day off a week and he'd play cards for 24 hours, solid drinking whiskey and stuff. But he's, you know, he, he, he worked all hours. Um, and I mean, it was hard. I mean, especially, you know, winter when it's freezing cold, it's outside. And I think what it did do for me though, was make me more determined to be good at football. Cause I didn't really want to, to follow his footsteps to, to escape it. And, um, subconsciously I think but yeah I, I learned, a few, learned a lot of lessons in, from my father um, my mother was kind of she was very calm that's where I get my personality from the fact that I'm very kind of stable I don't get too carried away neither up nor down very easy going I don't have a temper I never saw my mum lose her temper either right whereas my brother's more like my dad so you said you learned a lot from your mm. dad what mm. would you describe as the, the key things you learned from him well people often talk about my kind of um the fact that I never got booked, I never got a yellow card or a red card in my, in my whole career. And I, I go back to it. I remember one incident that I remember really well is that um, I was playing a game. I must have been about 14 at the time. And I was scoring a lot of goals by that stage. And I think the referee gave two or three decisions that I didn't agree with. And I, I swore at the ref. And I, you know, I'm, and my dad walked onto the pitch, grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. And said, "Right, you ever do that again, you you will not play wow. football." And he took me took me off the pitch in front of all your mates, in front of all my mates. It was like he was like, "Whoa!" And was he dead? I think that, or was he just no, no. He was just parent. He said, "You don't you don't talk to, you don't talk to referees. You don't talk to anybody like that." And just scruff of the neck, boom, in the van home. He wasn't a coach, but he used to take the team around him. We always sit in the back of the van, all wobbling <laughs> all over the place. The whole team. And how, how would you describe your relationship with him? I, I was quite moved when. I heard you say on another podcast mm. that the only time he said, I love yeah. you yeah. was as he was dying. Mm. Yeah. Just before. Yeah. yeah. It was, and we were always very close. Um, I mean, he was, he was I mean, he, he, he would say that he was proud, you know, occasionally. And, and you know, and I know that he got a lot of pleasure out of, of, of watching me play in particular, um, which was important. And uh, it, it's true. I mean, when he was in his, I mean, he ended up getting lung cancer, which wasn't overly surprising that he'd get that because he used to smoke about 60 to 80 a day of those things without any tips yeah. on. So um, it was, you know, it wasn't that surprising, but, and he was, he was kind of phlegmatic about it. But we used, you know, I used to go up to Leicester to, and particularly towards the latter stages, I was up there every other day. I'd get a call and we're not sure he's going to, you know, so up I'd go and then back down to, so I was up and down. Um, and we had, and, and in that time we had to had more kind of meaningful conversations than we probably ever had in our life or because all, everything before was just fun and like banter or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then we had these, you know, conversations and I, I mean, one of them was, you know, I mean, when, when my parents were, when I was at school, when I was, I, I was well, obviously 10 years old, cause I passed the 11 plus. But we just moved to a house in a place called Kirby Muxlow, which was outside the centre. So it was in the county. So when I passed the 11 plus, there was only one school um, that that you could choose from. There's only one grammar school in that particular area. And, and, but they didn't play football there. So my dad said, well, we, we, that, we, we can't have that. He said, that happened to me when I was young. He said, I'm not going to allow that to happen to you. Um, so he said, we'll move. 
So, so I thought, oh, right, fine. <laughs> and um, I went to live with my grandparents for six months to enable me to go to to what was then City of Leicester Boys Grammar School. It's obviously no grammar schools around now. Got to be a certain age to remember the 11 plus. Um, so I lived with my grandparents for six months and I remember having a conversation with them. I said, I said Dad, I said, I said, that was a hell of a thing to do. I was like 10 years old. What, you know, you must have... Th- and um, I remember him saying, he said, yeah, yeah. He said, no, I couldn't let that happen to you. And he said, I could see your talent. I said... You know, did you know? Did you know that I was going to be? Because I, because I never did. I, even when I was 22, 23, 24, I never. I always thought I was blagging it. And, and, and my dad said, "I always knew." And I said, "Well, you could have told me." <laughs> <laughs> and and it was. And then this time, with one of the many chats that we had just before he passed away, um, probably the last coherent conversation I had with him. Um, I was about to, I said, Dad, I, you know, better go now. It's getting late. And he said, no, no, sorry, sonny. And, and as I went, he went, I love you. And it was like, whoa. Yeah. And I, I, I went, love you too, Dad. And I, I got out and I got in the lift and I was gone. I was crying. Mm-hmm. And, it, and suddenly, like eight nurses and people came in the lift and it was like, oh, no. are you all right? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> I'm sure they used to seeing people crying in hospitals, but, but it was moving. It, it meant a lot because, you know, that generation, they didn't, you know, they didn't share their feelings very much. I think things, it's changed now. You mean, I'm totally different with my kids than yeah. that, but it's just how it was. And how much of that young life then was about trying to impress your dad or trying to get that nod of approval from him probably a lot of it really you know i i think most of us we you know we look up to our our parents and then when eventually when we get adults we we work out that they've got weaknesses and foibles as well um but yeah absolutely um i'd always want to impress you know my dad my mum used to come and watch my granddad as well my granddad played for the army in the um for the british army um it's kind of either just before the war or, or, or even during it, I think. Um, so, you know, he was a really good footballer. So that's probably where I get certainly the speed from because he was rapid. Um, so, yeah, I think you all want to please your parents. And I was, I was always the same, even when, even when I was a professional. See, one of the things that stood out when I was reading about your young life as well, Gary, was just the variety of sports that you did as well. So you were a good, le- a good level cricketer, you were a really good snooker player as well. How important do you think that variety of doing different sports rather than just focusing solely on football was for your eventual career? It's hard to know because that's how I did it. So I've got yeah. nothing to compare it with. But I don't think it's that uncommon for someone who reaches the high level of, of, of sporting excellence to be good at other sports because obviously there's a certain hand-eye coordination, all yeah. those kind of things, certainly spatial awareness, that sort of stuff. I always thought I'd make it cricket, not football right. when I was a kid. I mean, I was very small. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't reach puberty until I was 17, which was embarrassing at times in the shower when I joined Leicester, but <laughs> I used to hide and sneak in the little <laughs> shower at the end. Um, so yeah, so I didn't really grow until I was, which is I think why my, uh, why I was a, slow to reach the top in football so I wasn't like you know Michael Owen or Wayne Rooney or, or yeah. many of the young players we see today that emerged in their teens I didn't I it was I was 20 21 before I started to become a regular at Leicester in cricket I honestly believe I'm gonna I'll make it cricket you know I captain Leicestershire schools right through yeah. I played in the England schools festival um but, but did I you loved make, reach a moment where, where you had to make that decision then I suppose so but not really because Football's opportunity just came along. 
I think I was about 12 years old when I got spotted and I used to go Tuesdays and Thursdays after school and then Saturday morning, right. mornings if we didn't have a school match um, to training at Leicester, at what would be called an academy nowadays. And, um, and then I, got, I had trials when I was 16 and they said, we're, we're, we're going to take you on as an apprentice. And then cricket took a back seat, really. That was right. it. So it, it, was, it was just the opportunity that came along first was the one I... I've got no regrets about that. And we have lots of teachers and lots of parents that listen to this podcast. What advice would you give to parents of talented youngsters or teachers who are looking to get the best out of their young people to really empower them, but not overawe them? Mm. Just encourage them, really. I think that's what I go. I mean, one of my pet hates in life is, is was watching my, not because I was watching my boys, watching my boys play football or cricket or rugby whatever it was they were playing were the parents on the touchlines or even the coaches at times um because everything's so negative don't mess about with it there boot it go over there and you just thought no you know and these kids just want just want to have fun and if they've got talent if you're too critical of them you'll knock it out of them you'll either not the love of the passion of the game so therefore they won't play anymore yeah. or you'll knock their confidence so they won't perform as well as they possibly could I watched my four boys all play all different levels. Um, you know, George, my eldest, by his own admittance, he wasn't very good. Um, in, fact, in fact, summing up parents, I had one woman come up to me, a mother of one of the players. She said, oh, is that is that your lad up front there, isn't it? I went, yeah, that's George. She went, oh, I thought it'd be better than that. <laughs> so it's, you know, wow. you get that kind of nonsense on touchline. Yeah. Everything's like negative. Um, so, you know, the advice I would, always give them is, is is just to be positive i used to i just sat on or stood usually on the side of the touchlines watching them for years and years and years never said a word i'd clap if they did well uh, when they yeah. think and then when after the game i'd say oh you did really well you did. just encouragement and how much of a challenge was it being an elite performer and being a parent at the same time we have a lot of messages from people saying i want to give 100 percent to my family mm. life i want to give 100 percent to my career i'm not sure how and, and what to do well, I think the fortunate thing about being a footballer or even involved in football in the way I am now is that, um, as you will know yourself, I mean, doing the similar job, is that even though you do work hard, there's a nice balance to the life. There's a lot of home time. And, and I think that that was important. It's not like you'd work in every day. Yeah. So there is a nice balance. And I feel, I feel blessed to that because I've watched my kids grow up and spent a lot of time with them um, in that process. Can we talk about when the football career started then? And you ended up at Leicester and Jock Wallace was the man in charge. What did that period teach you? Jock was great for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I tactically it was, you know, from a bygone age and it was, you know, long ball and, 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 and but, you know, up and atom stuff. But he's a hugely significant um, person in my career, um, not necessarily for my football, but for how to live my life outside of football and how to give myself the best possible chance to succeed. He was a terrifying individual. He came down when I was, I think, about 17, 18, and I was starting to make a bit of progress. And the first time I ever saw him was, he. he I think he got the manager's job on a Tuesday, and then we had a, like a Wednesday night reserve game at, at Filbert Street. And we play in the game and it came in at half time and then Jock came in at half time. 
and this huge imposing figure and he walked through the door and he was cursing you we are fighting you useless little and I was thinking Oof. And, and he was looking at me and he walked up to me and he picked me up behind the scruff of the neck put me against the like dressing room wall he's going don't you get running your wee lazy English little shite you all this stuff and I was going I was, I was terrible I wouldn't mind it but I scored two goals in the first half we were 2 nil up <laughs> and that, needless to say I didn't do much in the second half I was a gibbering wreck um, and then at the end of the game he came in again and he went my office nine o'clock in the morning no. forgive me for the terrible just Scottish accent it's not bad <laughs> so, 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 I th so I thought I thought that was it I thought my career was gone I was finished um, but I got there about quarter to nine and I, I sat outside his office like a naughty boy waiting to see the headmaster and eventually 15 minutes or so later he, he said laddie go in sit down so I sat down like this and he says and I was trembling trembling and he just said oh, I want to say one thing you actually were trembling I was trembling I was definitely trembling terrified thought I thought I was going to be yeah. shown the door yeah. and he said I just want to say one thing you were magnificent last night. I said, I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> you were magnificent. He said, but I just wanted to make a wee point, laddie, that you've always got to give a little bit more. Let that be a lesson in life. And I thought, oh my God. Wow. I thought, you could have told me last night. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then, then he became very much, not a father figure, because that's because I had a father figure, but he became important because he, he, he would be, he'd lecture me about how to, you know, you don't go out, don't go out drinking after a game and I went after tonight. Don't go, you know, you'll have your times when it's the right moment after a Saturday game. Or no, and he was, he said, you've got a chance. And I, I and, and I lived, I, I, you know, I still went out occasionally, but I wasn't like so many of the others that would go and drinking pints and, and all this all night and going out and stuff. So I think, I think that was important because I think I, he got and helped me to understand how to get as a sportsman anyway, how to get the best out of myself. But I was going to ask Gary, like, how does like a grammar school lad going from the environment, like what you had at school and in the cricket environment, to going into that where resilience is almost expected of you? How did you learn to cope in that environment then? It's well, a, a, a good question, but it's a difficult question to answer because I, 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 don't, I don't honestly know. I mean, you, you're a, you're right. And you know, you know, I talked about jokingly about, you know, I hadn't reached puberty and I'm walking in the shower and I was genuinely, yeah. you know, because you, you don't want to show any kind of weakness yeah, yeah. Um, and stuff like that. So, and it, you know, it was tough. And I, in those days, the, it was an apprenticeship. So you, half the time you'd be spending either cleaning dressing room um, or cleaning players' boots. I mean, I had the job of the first team dressing room, which was, which was good, but it was also tough because, you know, I was, you know, some of my heroes were there and I'm, you know, Frank Worthington was there for a few months at some point and, you know, Mark Wallington, the Leicester goalkeeper and uh, so many, you know, of the people and players that I'd kind of worshipped as well. And I was there cleaning up the dressing room and it was, you know, they treat you, they treat you. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. And, and, and the thing is, and I mean, now it seems ridiculous, but nowadays all the, every team, they have like a million kits, don't they? Fresh kit every day, yeah. new shiny boots. In those days, they got one set of kit for the season, for training. So what we did on the Monday, I trained, it, they finished the training, whatever, you know, either sweaty or stinking or freezing or covered in mud. Or, and then we used to have to put it on these hangers and then take them all into the drying room. And they just dry overnight. So you can imagine 
the stench by Thursday and Friday. <laughs> and then we had to, you know, you had to kind of wipe the dressing room floors and, you know, mop them and clean the toilets and do all these kind of jobs, which I did until I was 18. And then again, it gave you a thing about, I really need to make it a football. Cause the- but, but, but did you ever have a back door? Like the idea that, Actually, I'll go and give cricket a go. Uh, well, I honestly thought if it didn't happen, I would, I would, have tried. I mean, I carried on playing. I always yeah. played right throughout, you know, when I was football and I played right throughout my career. And uh, um, I played, played one, th- one Thursday, which I never normally do. Um, but I used to play for, when I was playing for Tottenham, I used to live in St. John's Wood. So I used to play for a club called Cross Arrows who play pretty much every day in September. It's like a chat. Right. And for me, that was perfect because they'd play on a Tuesday or Monday. or whatever. So I could fit it in around if I got a free week. And then I played on this Thursday one day, which I wouldn't normally do when we got a game on a Saturday. But So I went and played in the afternoon after training and, and I got a few runs and then we fielded and they said, come on, Gary, have a bowl. And I said, I don't bowl. I don't want to bowl. Because the game was kind of meandering to a draw. So I don't want to, I don't want to bowl. I don't bowl. They said, go on, have a go. And I went, all right. So came in the second ball, went like that. And my side went twang. I pulled him. I thought, oh no. (laughs) And I was struggling. And I went and trained the next morning. I think we were playing Villa on the Saturday. And I came in and um, said, I've got to go and see Terry. I said, Venables. And I said, Terry. And he went, what have you done? And he said, I've I've torn my side. He said, how'd you do that? And I thought, do I lie? (laughs) And I thought, no. I said, I did it playing cricket. He said, you did, what? <laughs> he said, that's it. No more cricket. No more cricket. I said, you can't. I said, no. I said, no more bowling, Terry. No. <laughs> and we came, we came to a deal on no more bowling. So I always, I always played. In fact, my, probably my favourite, you can forget all the World Cups and all that, well, probably one of my favourite days ever. It was a Monday and it was the week before the start of the new season. And we had a friendly at White Hart Lane in the evening. I think it was against West Ham. Not sure. And um, Wouldn't be much of a friendly then, would it? No. But yeah, but it was just a warm-up game, you know, so it doesn't matter. But anyway, so on the, the night before, on the Sunday, I get a phone call from a guy called Dave English who ran um, the Bumbries, which was a charity cricket club. But he also, he also organised a lot of testimonial cricket games for players. He did a lot of good, wonderful guy. He said, I've got, I've got a game tomorrow, a great game at, at Finchley, um, just up the road from you. He said, can you play? I said, I can't, I can't play tomorrow. So I've got a game. So I've got a game. I said, I can't, I'd love to play. He went, oh, we've got so many players like this and that. He's playing this. And he's, I said, I, I can't. I said, I, I can't, just can't, I'd love to. He said, what about, what about if you bat first, you can open when you're out, you can go. He said, I just need a name. I need another celebrity name. I went, Christ, go on then. <laughs> so I went along. And the, and the first over bowling was Courtney Walsh, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm there. And he does this, he goes off this ridiculous long run up and then like comically bounces it miles over my head as a joke. And then the next ball, he goes after about a three yard run and he's going to bowl. And I went, Courtney, I said, would you give us a proper over? You know, like a proper foot. And he went, you sure, man? I went, <laughs> yes. So I thought, go on then. So he goes, so he goes on his normal run. He comes down. The first ball, it was like, oh, Christ, he went past the bat before I even see it. Second one, it was similar. He was sensible. He was kind of bowling it just 
full length and outside the off stump. Yeah. He didn't want to hurt. So second ball I'd left and then but then I got a couple of four def- on the last ball of the over, I just thought, well, he's pitching it there. I'll take a bit and I put a front leg and I stroked it and he went right through the covers for four. And it was like, whoa. So it was one of those days where I just couldn't miss. I ended up 112 not out at lunch. <laughs> Sweating. Oh, no. <laughs> 112 <laughs> not out at lunch. I was thinking, and I said, Dave, I, I got to go. He said, no, go on. You've done me, you've done me proud. Off you go. So I went off and played that night and scored a trick. Yes. What a day. <laughs> That's the best day That ever. is a high performance Forget day. Forget the World Cup. That was a high performance <laughs> day. Did you buy a lottery ticket? Forget, the way I, I just well. should have done, yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> there is an interesting recurring theme, though, isn't there, when we, when we look back over all that period, whether it is your dad pulling yeah. you off the football field in front of your mates, whether it is hiding in the shower at the end because you were a, a late developer, whether it is Jock making you shiver in his office with panic. All of that is resilience building. Mm. And I wonder whether we create resilient enough young people these days. You know, Damien and I talk often about our frustration with helicopter parenting, where we're all addicted to hovering over our children, smoothing everything Mm. in front of them. And all of those are really good lessons that the struggles and the failures and the low points and the hard times were the, were the bits that created you. Mm. It's, it's, it's hard to know, isn't it? Because there's, you know, there's no kind of guidebook is there for parenting when you you just get this little thing don't you and off you go so it's 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 a really hard one I don't know and I often you know I often think about why have I why have I been so successful why have I genuinely think many many times why have why have I been so lucky you know I always think sometimes because I'm not religious I, I'm, I'm you know I don't mind admitting I'm an atheist I don't believe any of that stuff but I do wonder sometimes whether there's some other planet out there, whether they're playing a PlayStation game or something <laughs> and we're just part of their game. And whoever I've got has been a really good player and has given me one hell of a life. You know, I do wonder why. I, you know, it's just, you know, obviously I was given a gift to play football and I've, I've, I had a good work ethic. But so many things have happened to, you know, like I didn't get injured. I didn't, you know, at all. Um, until the very end of my career, um, so I had so much good fortune. I think it's all—it's always important to. But did you feel lucky, that. even as a young man? Did you feel that sense of fortune, or was it more in hindsight? No, I was kind of without being good at sport. Life would have been very different for me because I was, you know, I think I would have been bullied at school. I was—they were kind of marginally that way anyway because I was like, you know, this tiny geeky kid with like darkish skin and I pretty much racist abuse although I'm not I'm you know I'm, I'm as English as they come really? you know, yeah all the time all the time uh, even in professional football I had that a couple of times I wouldn't ever name any yeah. names yeah um, so I got that kind of nonsense which was a bit weird but you know whether that was part of something that that made me I don't know but other people might not be able to handle that but I think by you know how you my greatest strength in my to me was not you know, not my right foot, not my this. It was was my mental strength, and I always had that. I, you know, I was never nothing. You know, if even if I had a shocking game or things were not going very well, yeah, it never really, never really got to me. So even if we if we fast forward a bit into your career in that build up to 1986, when you're in the team but you haven't scored for a while, there's lots of media speculation as to whether you deserve your place. Mm. How were you processing all of that? That you in like I've seen the documentaries where it wasn't like 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 the hotel rooms in Mexico yeah. were quite austere. You've mm. not got the ability to phone. Yeah, it's what you used to. I mean, football changed like, dramatically, yeah. and it was very different back then. But it's so much how it is and how it was that that was 
you just got on with it. But the bit about you personally is a mm. bit that I'm interested mm. in. Of how did you cope with that pressure that you there was like you'd injured your arm? There was a speculation about yeah. your role. Oh, for that that particular yeah. thing. Well, I I thought my World Cup was was done, you know. But I managed to find this splint that they would have. It was right to the last minute. They were they were trying different splints on and stuff. And in the end, I had this one that was it was fairly useless, but it meant I could play. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was in so much pain in '86. The whole the, I, I, just running, just running. The wind against my hand when I was running was absolutely agony. Let alone when falling over and stuff. But I was so determined to play. I mean, it's, it's the World Cup. You do everything. Um, but, but how did you block out the noise about like whether you were good enough to be there or yeah. the speculation I, around you? Again, I had my self doubts all the time. You know, I hear people say, you know, you, you, I always knew I was going to, and I, I didn't. I genuinely, even in, you know, even after the World Cup, you know, when I was 16, 17, breaking through at Leicester, I used to, you know, I remember first time I was in the reserve team, I used to think, mm, this will find me out. And they're getting, then I got in the first team and I was sitting, I was sitting around all these, my heroes and thinking, what am, I, what am I doing in here? And then, you know, I struggled for a bit because I was, as I said, small and, you know, and I didn't really break into it till I was 20, 21. Then I started scoring a lot of goals and then I got an England call-up. I was at home one Monday afternoon, just got home from from training and the phone rang and my mum answered it. And she said, this when the old days of a landline, remember them? So she, she answered it and she said, um, it's Gordon Milne, who was the then Leicester manager after Jock West. I went, what? I thought, oh God, what have I done? Because I'd never had a phone call ever from, from a manager. So I've gone to the phone, I've gone, boss. And he's gone, grab yourself a toothbrush, come to the ground, pick up your football boots, drive up to Wrexham. Bobby Robson's been on the phone, you're in the England squad. So that's what I did. I did exactly that. And I always remember driving up, and it was so embarrassing. <laughs> I used to have this little sponsored like, car with my name all written over the side of it. And I remember, because <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. So I drove up all the way to, Re to Wrexham, because we were playing Wales. And um, and I arrived there, and I remember seeing like Tony Woodcock, Pete Shilton, and all these Terry Bush, all these players that I was like, well, they would have been your heroes, right? Well, definitely. I mean, I was twenty four by the time I got near you know, to England, but it, I was still, as I said, I always think I was a little bit behind in terms yeah. of my maturity, probably because of the reasons I talked about before. But you know, I just think. Anyway, I didn't get on that game, but then I, you know, and then I think it was, a, it was about a year later that I actually made my debut and scored my debut at full start, I should say. I played 10 minutes in, in, at Hamden. And then yeah, I started scoring goals with England. It just didn't seem to make any difference which level that I, I, I'd still score. I enjoyed it. I just went out and just played and did my job and... I didn't get nerves. I don't get nerves. I don't, I don't know. I'd hear people talk about that feeling right. of like nervous tension or butterflies. And I, I don't know what that feels like. So for anything, never had it for no, any, really? No. You know, and then I went to the world cup and I scored six goals and we, I won the golden boot. And then, and then I went back and I, and then suddenly I'm playing for Barcelona. Yeah. And then in my first classico, which is, is January, I, I scored a hat-trick in it at home. We win 3-2. And then a month later, I scored four goals against Spain and Bernabeu. And I genuinely thought I was blagging it. And I remember <laughs> running back to the halfway line and, I, and Brian Robson's alongside me. And I went, Robbo. And he went, what? I, why am I so lucky? And he went, I'll do fuck off. <laughs> 
but you could feel that. <laughs> I put, I je- but that was it. And then I start, and it was at that point that I started to realise, actually, no, I'm good at this. I am genuinely good. And at what this. age were you then? Um, that would be, I'd have been 26. So, 25, did you 26. not have an ego? You didn't barrel around. I think we've all got an ego. It was just, but not. But I wasn't of, no big time. No. no, no. I don't. I hope not. I, I mean, I was confident. I, by the, you know, once I'd got to that stage, once I get to, once I was at Barcelona and doing all these things, then yeah. I, I think there was more more confidence came into my game. But it was it's weird to try and explain to people because I don't think you can get to the very top of something by not really believing in yourself. And I did believe in myself, but I didn't see myself on the same level as the other great players in, in world football. But maybe that was an, actually a brilliant strength because it, yeah. it meant you were never comfortable. You no, were constantly that's it. I challenging think yourself. Constantly challenging, constantly pushing myself to do more. I was never satisfied with anything. In fact, it was always like, oh, you probably just got away with that. I don't know. It's weird and it's, it's really difficult to explain and it's probably not the greatest advice but that's how I was yeah. and, and I've always been but like then, that do you remember that game when there was a Centennial match at Wembley and you were on that rest of the world team and you had people like yeah. Maradona Mario Diego uh, played, yeah. Yeah. like all, yeah. the, all like the greats of the game mm. what were you thinking when you were in that dressing room at that stage yeah. did you had you accepted that, that, that was you about, deserved that to was be around there? this period it was the um, football league centenary um, and it, so it was the English league playing against the rest of the world. Yeah. So it was a friendly, um, but it was, and I was playing for the rest of the world because I was at Barcelona at the time and not part of the football league. But believe you me, by the way, I wasn't the only one that was in awe of Diego Maradona. When he walked in, everyone's like, tongues were hanging out. Really? I mean, he had that much of a presence. He was that much better than everyone else. And, and Platini played in that game and there was like all sorts of great players. And he just walked in, he walked in and he was the only one that was paid to play in that game quite a lot. But did we care? No. And he came in and, he, and the first thing he did, he just sat there, he got changed and he, to his shorts and then he just, you know, like you get a pair of socks and you roll them and he just juggled it on his left foot for about two minutes, three minutes. And then he walked out and did this thing that kicked the ball up in the air. He was just, he was just on another level. And for me, what is unbelievable is that you can play at the highest level of sport like I've managed to do and like lots of those other players to do. But then there can be someone that is that much better than everyone else still. Mm. That kind of genius. It's like Messi in, in the last 15 years. He's just does things that ordinary mortals can't do. Just can't. And, yeah. and, but that was magical. You know, that was magical. I see that. So when did you develop these superstitions that you have like <laughs> I had loads of those when I was young yeah so do you know it, what I worked out though in the end that, yeah being superstitious is it's unlucky <laughs> <laughs> but were they coping strategies that, that you think maybe not deliberately but uh, yes I think they were yeah I think they were it's all it's all about because you've, you've it's about confidence and, and calmness and being because my my main worry when I before I played them again the only thing that I used to worry a little bit about was how I would feel physically once the game started. Right. Because it's amazing how different. You can get out on the pitch and suddenly you feel, oh, it's everything, it's everything's hard work, everything's aching or, you know, it's the same now when I go in the gym. Three, I go in the gym three days a week, two of the days I feel great and then one day I feel awful and as I get older now it's two days that I feel <laughs> awful and one day that I feel great. But the important thing is that you're comfortable and confident yourself. So if I was on a bad run, I'd do like silly things like, 
if I go more than, say, two, three games without a goal, I get air cut. <laughs> Makes no sense. Yeah. Except that it's amazing how many times it worked. And it probably kicks out the negative vibes that you've got in your head. So even though it's super if I play a match, if I scored in the first half, I'd keep the same shirt on. If I didn't, I'd change the shirt at half time. Right. There's all sorts of nonsense in here. But it's just, again, it's like something fresh, something just different yeah, thinking. Yeah. At the time, I didn't think of it as that way. But the more I, re as I reflect on it now, because I, it's a bit embarrassing, really, all these silly things that you do. You know, I'd drive a certain route if it was going well, and then I'd try somewhere else if it wasn't, and all these stupid things on the way to the game. Rio said, he's, I used to, you know, the water bottles. Yeah. He said you had to empty it on his head before he went out. <laughs> I mean, it's all sorts of nonsense. But Ridiculous. if it works. Yeah. But did you keep them right to the end of your career, those yeah. sessions? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm so interested in this conversation about it. You talk almost like yeah. it happened to you. Yeah. Rather than you made this happen. Yeah, I think there's a, they're both true. You know, you've got to make it happen. But I'm also aware that I was given a talent. I got a talent, born with a talent that, you know, so you can't just go to someone, you know, some kid playing football who's not got that talent and, you know, say, if you work hard enough, you're going to go all the way to the top. You know, if you work hard enough, you'll get to the best level that you can possibly get. And that's, I think that's as much as you can say to someone in that sense. But I think there is an important conversation to have here that even with all that talent, you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't talk to us about the hard work that had to go with it. So did you make a conscious decision at one point to be the hardest worker in the room? You mentioned earlier on think I, I don't think I was the hardest worker in, in, in the room um, in terms of training and stuff like that. I didn't really enjoy training and because I didn't think it ever was that helpful. Apart from, I, I didn't mind the working out, you know, the pre-season, getting fit, which was important. But I used to get really kind of frustrated by 
how training used to be then. And I know it's changed a lot now. You know, you plan bumpy pitches. And, and all I wanted to do was practice my craft, which was, you know, making runs, scoring goals, getting into dangerous areas. Whereas most of the training was five sides with little goals. And I, it, used to, it used to bore me. It didn't stimulate me. And I used to think it was... It wasn't really what. What was it giving us? Especially strikers. You you know you you finish it in a in a goal that's really small, and then you you can't. You know what? How does that help? So I was. I never really loved training, but I used to think a lot about the game, and I think most of my training was off 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 the training ground, off the pitch, and I I, I loved working with Terry Venables. When we were in Barcelona, we used to go to lunch two or three times a week, which you'd never normally do with a coach, never. But probably because he was the English guy there and I was with Mark Hughes and we'd go for lunch to the beach club or sometimes and we'd just discuss football yeah. and movement. And and he's the, he was the coach that was so different because I played for lots of really good coaches and there are loads around, but it was always... This is the way the team plays. There's a structure. There's a way. This is how you play within it. But with Terry, he'd come to me two or three times a week. So I've been thinking about this. You know, if the ball's there on the right-hand side and if you just check maybe to the left and then spin out to the right, do you think that that would work? And sometimes I'd go, mm, not really, Terry. But then, And then other times I'd say, mm, maybe. And then we'd try it. And then every now and again, there'd be something you go, I actually do that. And I loved that. For me, the work, which I didn't find it as work, was was thinking about the game, yep. thinking yeah. about how to get better. Thinking, But for me, training was always a disappointment. You know, and I wanted to do shooting. And then you'd, that on the days we'd do shooting, everybody did it. So right. you got like 20 players, guy knocking the ball to the coach, getting one back. You get a shot every 10 minutes. But it was only in the latter stages in my career where I was confident enough to go to a coach, which was Terry. Um, not when I was at Barcelona, because do you know in Barcelona they only had one tiny pitch as a training ground, well, right next to the stadium. The one at the stadium, right? Yeah, yeah that's obviously magnificent now. But when I, you know, after that, when I went to Tottenham, I, I used to say to him, "Is it all right if I go on my own with a goalkeeper and a bag of balls and someone to knock the ball?" And he was fine. He went, "Yeah, you do that." And then I actually felt I was getting something out of it. And that's. I want to practice what I do on the pitch. Yeah. I don't want to stand there and be part of a team working on team shape where you don't do anything for, for an hour and a half. And it just bored me. I want to move the conversation on to something a bit different. You've, you've said that um, you felt really blessed and you can't almost believe that this is the life that happened to you. And if you don't want to discuss this, then I, that's absolutely fine. But there's probably the two moments that would not make you feel like you've been blessed is the, the two separations that you've had. We have a lot of people that listen to this and talk to us about relationships in the workplace with partners, with their children quite often. Would you mind sharing us in this wonderful life of abundance and being so blessed and achieving so much, what those quite difficult personal journeys have taught I you? I don't see them as that. I see them as two really, really successful marriages. Right. I had 20 years with, with Michelle. We, as, as people do, we married young. We, and after a long period of time, we just drifted slightly apart, made a decision to go on our own. Um, I think that was a really good marriage. And my second marriage um, with Danielle, that was purely a thing about children and, and yeah. change. And I mean, obviously there are ups and downs in all marriages anyway. And mm. then breakups, you know, it's actually getting around to doing it. The difficulty is, is, is the actual procedure of the divorce thing in this country, which is, has been absurd. And I think it's going to be changed where somebody has to take the blame for a failed marriage, which was ludicrous. And it's, I think that's, it, that's an interesting that way to look at those 
divorces though, because yeah. we, we speak sometimes about manifestation on this podcast, which basically means if you operate with a, a high energy, high positive energy, good things happen to you. And some people would have looked at those two and said, well, I was married for 20 years and it failed. What a shame. Or I had a great relationship that was at the beginning and it didn't go anywhere. That's but yeah, you that's choose life, to look at the positives. And I wonder whether yeah. that's the reason yeah. why good things have happened to you throughout your life. Because this is the power of looking on the positive yeah. side. Well, I am a positive. I've always been a positive person. I, and, and I think it, it, I'm sure it's probably helped me yeah. in, in many ways. No question about that. Um, but, but that's how I genuinely feel. I'm, you know, I'm friendly with both my ex-wives and, and, you know, and you said if you could do it all again, would you? I'd, well, yes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. I've got four wonderful boys for, with, with Michelle and, and a best mate with Danielle. Can you offer us some advice on, on how you maintain those friendships, even while like the romantic element might, might fizzle away that people listening to this, even if it's not about personal relationships, it might be about in the workplace. Yeah. I can only go on my own experiences and that's, you know, and I'm, I'm someone who doesn't like confrontation for a start. So I'll do everything I can. It's in my nature to try and make everything okay. And that, that's important. I think the difficult thing in, in divorce is that what happens is you, if it's because someone else has been involved, then that, that, that becomes a difficult experience. I don't know what that's like. So from my experience, it was, it was more of, you know, just, Let's okay. Let's do it, and then the difficult bit is dealing with the media side of it. Who is it? Suddenly becomes this massively negative story right. when it doesn't necessarily need to be that. And the other difficult thing was is is when lawyers get involved because and people who've been through this will know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you can go perhaps with hoping to have a nice amicable split, and then the divorce lawyers get in and the, the letters go out, and then you start to think, oh, she, perhaps she doesn't like me or you know and then and and basically they're just trying to make money for themselves yeah. Yeah. um you know and that's with the first divorce i learned a lot from that because you know i think we were exploited um and i think in my well my second divorce cost i think lawyer's fees was 500 600 quid because we did it online right. and you can do it because it's amicable and that's that would be my best advice try and make your split as amicable as possible because it's so much better and it's so much less stressful. And that's important because dealing with stress is not, not fun for anyone. I love your positive outlook. I love that you look on the good side. So how does that sit in this modern world where every time someone puts up a tweet, overcomes the criticism, you know, people with a hundred percent of an opinion with only 10% of the knowledge about either you or what you've said. Yeah. And we've all been there where we put things up and we feel almost bullied into deleting them because it's just not worth the heat. What's your relationship like with the, this modern world? Um, I, I doesn't really, I don't really, I don't get affected by it. Doesn't, I don't, you know, I put my opinions up and saying, and if people disagree, disagree. If they get abusive, then I, how like do you that, not get affected understand. by it? Because so many people I do. I don't really get affected because I, I don't read it. You know, on the, you know, on Twitter, you get the, co- there's yeah. different columns. There's the bit where you get people that I follow. So, you know, or, and blue tick holders. Or, and then there's another column a bit with people just reply. I never look at the left-hand column ever because why would you? But They're you probably obviously be- have done to make the decision not to. Well, I've seen it, but, yeah. and I see and from other people. And I, it, I think, 
I mean, when you know what what things do people have a go at me about? They'll, they'll talk about football and stuff, but really, I you know everyone's got an opinion on football. Why would you ever get upset by somebody disagreeing with you on a football opinion on? Things like refugees, for example, where I'm hugely supportive of humanitarian issues and I will re- continue to, to be so. I just can't really comprehend how you cannot have a degree of empathy towards people having to flee their own country, which is an unimaginable thing to have to do. I mean, you can imagine if suddenly London was completely bombed like we're seeing in Ukraine now and we all had to go. I think you've got to think like that a little bit. So I've always been, you know, on that side of things. And anyone who wants to have a pop at me about that, I don't think they're worth the time of day. That's my personal opinion. So why would I let it affect me? Also, don't forget, if you <laughs> growing up as a footballer, you get dox abuse. Yeah. You know, even from the yeah. the crowd. You know, I've, I've, you know, you get you, if you've got your name being sung by you know ten thousand fans when you're away from home singing Carolinica, you're a wanker you're a wanker which I had numerous times but I always took that as a compliment because if the opposition fans are singing songs about you, you must be they must be worried about you so I think it's probably something that I've got used to over the years but I've always avoided really reading the negative stuff sometimes I put tweets out just to do something ridiculously sarcastic and then have a look to see if anyone actually believes I really thought that but Again, that's that's my mentality. But it was like when I played football, I didn't want to see negativity. And and people say, well, you know, it's like now, if you're on social media now as a footballer, I mean, you know, yeah. it's a different thing. But in a similar way, when I played, if I'd scored two goals or a hat-trick or something on, on the Saturday, I'd buy every Sunday newspaper. Would yeah. you? Yeah. And Monday newspaper. If I hadn't scored, never buy a newspaper. So it's a similar thing. It's obviously different because it's social media and it's all all encompassing. But it's a similar similar mindset. But how much is integrity important for you? And the reason I ask that Very. is that, that I remember, like your last game in English football was mm. at United, yeah. and you got a stand innovation, didn't you? At the end, it, it was, was beautiful. The that's that's that one of the reasons that I've always had a, a degree of affinity towards. Yeah, I remember being with my brothers, club. and I think part of the reason because yeah. I remember even at the time when you came off the field and we sort of reflected yeah. on why you got it. And I think it was because you'd acted throughout your career with integrity. And I think that was what people were well, recognised. I, so. well, I think it's important. I, you know, I, I really do. Um, especially in modern times, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of hate out there now. I mean, we've always been tribal creatures, but they, I think, you know, with social media and things, it's become more so. And, it, and why can't you have a, different opinion to someone whether whatever it is even if it you know why does it have to be so divisive and i think sometimes you know games are played with us in this country to make us more divisive and i think that's that's really dangerous and i think we're seeing it more and more and i think that's a terrible shame what do you mean by that i mean by stoking the fire like take brexit for example which i don't talk about anymore and i don't because it's it's done and we're on and we're on this course that I didn't agree with at the time. Um, so, you know, we'll see where it leads us. But it was like, you're either a Brexit or a Remainer and then, or a Ramona. Why? Two or three friends of mine are Remainers. Two or three friends of mine are, are, were Brexiteers, if you want to call those, use those words. Yeah. Do we not get on back because of it? No, we're still best. It doesn't make any difference just because you have slightly different beliefs about something. But I think there's this thing where you whether it's through the newspapers with their constant front page, 
you know, having a go at the other side. And it's all become like really nasty. And I can't, I can't comprehend that. I just don't have that in, in, I just, it's just really you, weird. Life used you to be You said from right at the top of the government. A hundred percent. Because right they stand the against things now. Life used to be, yeah. what do you stand for? Yeah. Now it's all about what do you stand against? Yeah. And we see it, you're totally right. Yeah. From the very top of government, it's about what they, what they disagree yeah. with, with rather than what they actually have those, their own yeah. policies. And what, what should we all be doing to live in a world with less anger and less polarisation and less disagreement. Could we all be doing a better job ourselves? Well, we could, but I, I mean, it's really, I mean, wouldn't it be lovely to, to find a way of actually doing that? I have no idea how we do that. I just, I mean, I don't have a go at anyone on Twitter and stuff. I, you know, even if I disagree with them, I might do a little joke or something, you know, yeah. if, if they particularly deserve it or something, but don't be nasty. Why, you know, why do people feel the need to be unkind and horrible to other people you wouldn't do it to their face yeah it's just you know it's a social media thing there's a lot of good about social media you know a lot of lot of good you yeah. know you see a lot of really positive things but that that downside it just seems to have you know be kind of divided us more and more that them and us thing which is wrong so beyond acting with integrity and just representing your views and why why shouldn't you share those views and like you say the stuff yeah. about empathy you struggle yeah. not to are you ever tempted just not to have an opinion because you know the flack or the the response would oh, be if i feel strongly like, about something what's the point of having the platform that I, you know enormous yeah. platform that i've got if i don't try and lose it for what i think is good yeah and what i think is important i might be wrong on some things we're all wrong about some things so if you could boil down what would you regard as the important message you'd want people that go onto your platform to take away and do differently? Just really, just, it's fine to disagree. It's fine to disagree. It's fine to debate. It's absolutely fine. Yep. But when you become abusive and nasty and unkind and personal, that's unacceptable. And think to yourself, why am I doing this? Is it just clickbait? Is it just some kid in a thing? And then you think, well, why would I care about what he thinks anyway at this stage of his life? But, I think that's that's the downside of social media that you that you get. Yeah. And what about your children? What do they yeah. What do they think of it? Because they must get they're at more of an age where they've probably grown. Oh, up George with it. gets blamed, but George is very very phlegmatic. George is quite witty, right. and um, he, he deals with people in his own way. Nothing nothing gets to him. I mean, I don't know that it's because of what he went through when he was a baby, but yeah. he, you know he had leukemia and stuff, but. You can't remember that, but I don't know whether he's had a knock on or anything else. Doesn't seem to matter, but he's, he's he deals with it very well. He's the only one really that's. They're all on Twitter, but none of them really bother and get. He he tweets a lot, and he's right. got a decent following because he's actually quite funny, and he's very self-deprecating. So, and I think that always works. It's a bit of fun at your own expense yeah. sometimes, but yeah. So they're they're okay. They're just on. They're all quite relaxed about social media. They don't. You know, if they get a bit of stick, that doesn't seem to bother them, which is which is the right way. Well, how do they handle it when they see the dad getting stick? Um, they they they're quite you know protective, like anyone else. It's yeah, yeah very protective. But they they know it doesn't bother me. Right. They 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 know. You know, and sometimes they might say, "Oh, this well, this idiot had a you know saying this," and then you know, I want to we've had WhatsApp group chats and stuff. Oh, did you see that? But he's an idiot, Dad, and all that. You know, so you'll get a bit of supportive right. stuff like that. And I'll go, "Don't worry." Yeah, it's nice. I think part of the problem is the medium as well, though, isn't it? That it's not face-to-face yeah. -face conversation. That's exactly it. We all get a bit of stick sometimes for something on 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 Twitter yeah. or what. 
Tried to get your job having not street, played professional football. On the street, when did you ever get any stuff? Never. Never. But you me- do you remember when I joined BT and I wrote that blog yeah. about we're going to have new new pundits fresh from the game and you yeah. took offence to that and you messaged me and said yeah. you've offended people with a lifetime in the game. Well, yeah. And like that bothered me obviously because you're yeah. Gary Lineker and yeah. I was like a young guy in his 20s trying to make his mark yeah. in the industry and and that I think is a good example. If, we, if we'd had that conversation, yeah. I'd have said, oh yeah, we're going to get some fresh guys because I think yeah. it's going to be really yeah. good. There was never any offence meant, but because it was a written post. Yeah, because it came you over then as though you were having a pop at these Correct. guys that I've worked with for years. So yeah. I was, it's like anyone, if someone's critical of me or something like that, just, I, 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 I don't care, but it's, it's, it's also that thing, isn't it? It's like with your kids, for example, when you, you've, I've got four boys and there's loads of times I've had to dish out like telling off on the, you know, you discipline them in whatever way you can. But the minute someone else outside has a go at your kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the protective side. What? What do you mean? And then, so you, you don't like it, do you? And, and it was only that, Jake. It was, you know. But, I just, but again, though, that's an example yeah. of why the world's so hard. Because I yeah. didn't obviously mention your pundits, but no. interpretation. Yeah. What, and that's the issue. We yeah. now live in a world where you will interpret a tweet from someone very differently to yeah. you, differently to me. Mm. We need to find a way well, it's hard having more empathy. With, with words. You know, Correct. It's, it's, we've all done it with text yeah. messaging to people before even social media came along, haven't we? Where people have got the wrong end of the... wrong Mate, end. I'm of, all about the voice happen. note now because I think if you voice note people yeah. on WhatsApp, then your voice... I get halfway through and then think, what was I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> um, before we wrap this up, yeah. I do want to talk to you about moving into television and the importance of Des Lynham, who I know, as you know, is a hero of mine. Yeah. And I want people to understand the importance of generosity of spirit in yeah. this world. He called me a month ago. How is I'm, he? I haven't seen him for quite a long time. He, was, he sounded great. What did he do for you um, when you first came into this industry? He, he did a hell of a lot. And obviously when I first came in, it, I, I, I sat next to him as a pundit for a couple of years while he, I did a bit of radio and tried to, you know, as you well know, there are no kind of facilities to practice television, live television. If you're doing live television, it's you, in, you go straight into the deep end. And my deep end was um, the highlights of the 1996 Euros. And, and my second show was England, Scotland's highlights. And I think we like eight, eight, nine million people watching it or something stupid. Um, so and it was kind of, in at the deep end, but Des was always, always really amazingly supportive. Um, but at the same time, I would push Des and ask, ask him loads of questions about, because I, I was with the, do- what I think is the doyen of, of, of sports, sports presenters. And he was always incredibly helpful. And there were loads of things I noticed that he would do. I remember, I mean, I said this before, but if he used to look at the autocue and stuff and he, and he, He'd say, "I'm joining us this evening." Blah 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 blah. And they were joining us, and I did this all season. And I think, I think it, I remember it was once written on his screen as saying, "And joining me this evening." I heard him say to the audience, "Can you take me off and just put us, please?" So I said to him, "I've noticed that, but you always say us." And I said, "Why do you do that?" And he said, "Well, you've got to remember this. This this show is is not me." It's about everybody involved, everybody that's watching at home. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that we do all together. So I, and ever since, I've never said joining me. I, well, I may have done it if it was a mistake, yeah. but I've all, you know, joined it. Just, just, and there were lots of, lots of little things. And he used to say, try, you know, he's, he said so many, he's presenters, he said so many, he said, they're all, very, he said, they're all terribly good. They're very good. He said, but they don't take chances. They don't try and have a bit of fun with something. 
you know, don't take it too serious. Try and think of a fun closing line. He said, sometimes it will be rubbish. Sometimes it, he said, but people will notice and it'll be, you'll be more, it, it'd be more impactful. And they, they were the things that I took on board and I've, I've abused right throughout my um, wow. television career. And I've, you know, I've tried to be funny and um, most of the time it's not. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, we delivered it but, in a better way than Jock Wallace. But it doesn't matter if you've got, you know, if you've got, Three million, four million, whatever is normally watch match of the day. If if just a small percentage of those people laugh at some at one of yeah. your, your stupid jokes, then then you've perhaps made someone smile. And that's important. Really nice. Before we finish, we have our quick fire questions. What would you say, Gary? Are your three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you need to buy into? Um, I think kindness. I think yeah. I, I think that's 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 really really important. Self awareness. I think it, it is it's very important, which gives you an understanding of I think of of of, of caring for for people as well, which which is uh, I think an important thing. And a third one, I think the third one is is have some fun. You know, have fun yeah. with life. We only get one go. If you could go back to it one moment in time, what would it be and why? Well, that's a good question. Nineteen ninety. World Cup semi-final, probably not the penalty shootout, but probably Chris Waddle's shot when it goes across the goal, hits the inside of the post. See, now I know which way it will come out. <laughs> so I would have moved myself a couple of yards to the side and knocked it in and went one two one. And that's the only football match in my whole career where I look back and think, if only. I know there's the Brazil penalty thing, but that you know that's just a personal goal. But being that close to a World Cup final. That, you know, to lose on a penalty shootout or to be a whisker of the wrong side of the post when it hit Chris Waddle's ball came back out and I honestly believe we'd have won the final obviously I don't know that but you know they weren't the same Argentinian side that we'd played four years previously and that would have meant we were 90 minutes away from football immortality and that's the only thing and Bobby Robson was exactly the same I had the conversation with him it was the only thing that he ever used to bank. So every now, not every day. I don't think about it all the time. <laughs> honest, um, but every now and again, you just think, God, if only. What would you say is your highest performance moment, and what is the time where mm-hmm. you feel you really let yourself down? Highest performance moment. I think it has to be the winning the you know the golden boot. Probably the hat trick against Poland because it changed my life. It changed my life. It put me right at the top. You know, before that, I think I'd gone five or six games without a goal with England. I expected to be dropped for that game because we'd had bad results in the first two and we needed to win the game and I hadn't scored, even though I'd gone close. I thought Bobby would leave me out, but he didn't. He left Mark Haightley out for the first time ever. I think England played two small strikers um, and Beardsley played just off me and it, it worked. And I scored three goals at in the first half and then I got two in the next game and then one against Argentina I've got the goal in the Argentinian game that no one remembers um, and, and then I'm sat with a golden boot and life was different well, I was, then I was off to Barcelona and, and everything was different in my life so it has to be that and the time where you feel you most let yourself down um, on the football pitch probably that moment with my dad <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> when he dragged me like off the that. pitch. But realist in the football sense, probably that silly penalty against Brazil in a way. It was only friendly, but I was just being a f- trying to be clever. You know, I thought I'll do, it, I'll do it in style with a little penenka, and that came came off wrong. Um, and then a non-football sense? non-football. I'm trying to think a non-football. I've done things that I, I 
I wish I hadn't really got involved with the Brexit thing. Really? To be honest. I don't mind admit, you know, not, not the sense of putting out that I was going to vote for Remain because I, I don't mind putting out what I do. But the, the thing afterwards and then getting a bit carried away with the fact that we lost. And I, I, I think if I had my time again, I wouldn't have bothered with that. What's been the biggest sacrifice you've made in your pursuit of high performance? And would you do it again? I think all the sacrifices I made, I, I don't think they're that great. Maybe you I mean, what too a life to I've see had. Them, That's yeah. what I mean. What a life I've had. Sacri- training hard, you know, or thinking about the game all the time, or, or going to TV and media. And I mean, I, f- I feel I've had such an incredibly fortunate life and such a lovely balance to my life that I don't think that I don't consider anything that I've done as a sacrifice. Brilliant. And the final question, and this is kind of your last message to the people that have sat and listened yeah. to this conversation, which I've really loved, by the way. Um, how would you describe your one golden rule to living a high-performance life? Yeah. Um, give, you, give yourself the best chance to succeed. Work as hard as you possibly can. Do everything that you possibly can. And just aim high. And then you'll reach, you'll reach that level that, that then you'll be satisfied with yourself. And that's the most important thing. If you know you've done as well as you possibly can, then I think you can be satisfied. Damien. Jake. I really want people to listen to that conversation with Gary and realise that sometimes there isn't loads and loads of thought that goes into someone's high-performance life. And actually, when you are a high-performer, the reality is that sometimes it does feel like you're on someone else's roller coaster ride and you're being carried along and taken along with it. But I think the key thing with Gary is that he has such a positive outlook on life. And we've had these conversations so many times on high performance. If you have a positive outlook, if you see the good in every situation, if you believe that great things are going to happen, more often than not, they do. Yeah, definitely. I think the big thing that I took away from what he, from what Gary was talking about in his career was just sometimes just put one foot in front of another. Don't, don't get blinded by thinking I need to get to a certain level. You know, he said that he was 24 when he eventually made his England debut, which was relatively late for it, but he wasn't missing any of the steps of the process out. He was following the process of going from being an apprentice to a young professional to establishing himself at Leicester. And it's almost that, that willingness to wait and to be patient in your pursuit of high performance and trying to rush it and get there too soon. And even though he likes to look at the positives, you know, let's talk about the fact that, you know, he was embarrassed by his dad on a football field at a young age. He was a late developer, which also embarrassed him in front of his peers. Um, He had a, a really challenging manager, Jock Wallace at Leicester. He had really low, low points on a football field. You know, he's, been central to a game of football, which has taken this country so close to a World Cup that they didn't win. He's then had times where he's been pilloried on social media and kind of been forced to delete things that he's tweeted, for example. All of those things have happened to him, but he still chooses to see his life as blessed and positive and wonderful. And I think there's a real value in realising that those moments that are hard are not necessarily negative moments in our lives. They're all part of the story. And you can... In almost every situation, you can find the positive at the end of it. Yeah. And if there's a message that people listening to this could take away, it's about 
that very word gratitude is about practicing gratitude, which is what we're hearing Gary talk about. He's not just grateful when things go well, he's grateful for when they don't go well. He still practices that gratitude, which then gives you that spirit of abundance that gives you the capacity to be kind, which attracts people that have a similar mindset into your world. But if you want a starting point, it's about having that attitude of gratitude. Love that. Prioritise empathy over opinion. How many times have we said that on this podcast? We hear it so often that it's it's not by chance. It's the ability to step into somebody else's world, see it from their perspective, and just suspend your own ego is such an important characteristic. Loved it. Thanks, mate. Thank you, mate. Right, time to meet another high-performance listener. And I've actually met this person before because um, many of you know we did uh, a live tour in the back end of 2021, the start of 2022, and the final date was at the O2. And as I was leaving, someone came up and chatted to me and told me the story. And I think you should hear the story as well because he's since reached out to us. He'd love to come on the podcast and share his message with you. So welcome the man who has created Gin Barnard, which... And I'm not being paid to say this. He kindly sent me a bottle and it was absolutely delicious. Hey, Ben, how are you? Very well, thank you very much. How are you guys? We're really well, thanks. Really well. Now, just to explain the way this works for people. So we record these over Zoom and um, we give you a time. You come on and we have a quick chat. Just before we started recording, though, we said, hi, Ben, thanks for being with us. And you said, yeah, thanks, guys. I'm, I'm doing the classic entrepreneurs thing today. I'm trying to balance my business and my home life and my work life and everything else. So would you mind just explaining to people at home what today looks like for you? Because we have lots of wannabe entrepreneurs who see the glamour and the glitz and the fun and the nice cars and the exit valuation and all those things. Like, what's the truth? So today, uh, yes, we all have those dreams. Uh, today looked um, very much like uh, no car. Car is in the garage at the moment. My son is at a district uh, athletics meet in the rain. And I have to be here as well. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of sports, so I follow him as much as I can. So I bought the laptop um, and he is an avid listener as well. And he's mentioned um, that he would like to miss his meet and come and do this as well. But I was like, no, you go and do what you need to do. Um, and I'll do what I, I need to do. And you can listen back in the weeks to come when it comes out. But yes, it's been manic up at five, uh, quick workouts. Uh, breakfast, get him to school, find a taxi that will bring me to the place because I've got no car today, answer a few emails, answer a few phone calls, organise his um, him and some of his mates because they've lost where they're meant to meet on the track. So it's been all go, all very much exciting and in the pouring rain, hence why I probably look like a drowned rat on camera today. Well, it's all in the glamorous life of an entrepreneur. So Talk to us then about what high performance has done for you and why you think it's done what it has done. For me, it's it's allowed me to become more disciplined. I've listened to every single one uh, that you guys have done. It's helped me in a time where I was perhaps slightly coming off rails, not really sure what I was meant to do, um, lost a bit of direction. And I think a lot of us sit there and think we are the only ones. You know, there's no one else in the world that will think like me. I must be crazy. I must be doing something wrong. And it is nice to hear. And I, I like uh, most uh, of my friends are heavily into football. So I kind of, I have listened to every single one, but I actually missed the Rio Ferdinand one on purpose because I've, I've grown up playing football. And I started to look for my knowledge with 
people I didn't know, people that you have in the podcast, I was like, I don't know who this is, you know, like, but I will listen. So it's nice for me to be able to relate to people that have been through my journey and it kind of allows me to sort of stay a little bit more central, stay on point and think, well, if I keep going this way, something's going to happen. So what you're describing there then, Ben, is almost the power of cognitive diversity, having conflicting views that come in. So who is it that's really challenged your thinking, one of the guests on the podcast, that has led to a breakthrough of thought for you? There's Rhea Ferdinand who's, who said many things, doing different things. I, w- I grew up doing different things to my friends. So whereas Rio did the uh, ballet and the dancing, he kind of had to sneak away from his sort of peers. I did drama and sang and, you know, performed. And not that my friends didn't necessarily know, but it wasn't kind of the norm. I was meant to be that jock who was in all the sports teams and did et cetera, et cetera. So he, he really spoke to me about doing different things. And you've got huge guests and sort of a plethora of people have come into my head. But Ben Francis, he, you know, although he's a lot younger than I am, man, what he does is just brilliant it's just it's you know he's just on this wave and and his and his product is quality and he's allowed me to with our product we we are trying to create a product that's quality and not quantity so those two guys specifically i've related to them quite a lot and can you um explain to us whether you focus on process or outcome because obviously you know it's it's easy for you I think in some ways to look at um, a gin manufacturer or a spirits manufacturer who is in a place where you'd love to be in the future but actually the only thing for you to do is look at yourself and look at your daily tasks and the world-class basics that you employ so where do you sit Ben on this process versus outcome conversation everything is about process to me I truly do believe in the process and it is something that my uh, current, you know, boy who's out there running at the moment is he's just failed a discus. Um, he didn't get a, a throw. He's just won the 200 metres. And it's about the processes, getting yourself ready, doing those basics every day. We have um, a chart at home that we use. What's on the chart? So the chart is about uh, input and output. Uh, I talked to him about what we can input into our lives that will allow us to get a percent output. So I spoke to him about the 1% increase uh, and he his first conversation was, well, Dad, why would I put 1% extra in or why would I want to get 1% extra if I can get 10% more? Because I said, well, you do your 10% that one week. I'll do my 1% every day and let's at Christmas time, at the end of the year, see who's got more percentage increase. Mine should be 365. Yours might be 30, 40. And really talking to him about what he can control. He can control his sleep. He can control his eating. He can control everything within his realm of life. What he can't control is what others do. You know, his bus was late to the event today. So he came off, chucked his bag to me, ran to the discus, hit three no throws, but dusted himself down, picks himself back up, wins the 200. Brilliant. Wonderful. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for sharing that message and um, just keep on driving hard. It's a real pleasure to see you again. Thanks for coming to the live tour and I'm, I'm so pleased that we've had a positive impact for you. 
Right, that's just about it for us. Um, Florence has long wanted to uh, follow in my footsteps and be a podcast presenter, so she's asked if she can read the outro for today. So I've written it down for her. Off you go, Flo. As always, a huge thanks goes to you for f- growing and sharing this podcast among you. Community, please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from this series. Thanks to Finn from Rethink to Rethink this audio. Hannah, Will, Eve and Gemma remember there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase the world. Chase world. Chase world class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic. 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 And we'll see you very soon. Thank you very much, Florence. Um, there you go, um, a, a reading lesson as well as a podcast today. And everything Flo's just said, we absolutely mean. Listen, can I just say one final thing? Please, 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 for free, join the High Performance Circle. There are tens of thousands of members. They're getting keynote speeches. They're getting high performance boosts. They're getting newsletters. They're getting content and information that is changing their lives on a weekly basis. So if you'd like to join the High Performance Circle, just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, click on Circle. It's all there for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.